0: This is Truth With Grace, the media ministry of Grace Baptist Church. We're so pleased you've joined us today as we continue our exploration of the truth found in God's Word and the grace of salvation. Pastor Pierre Rosa is continuing his preaching through the Gospel of Matthew, and today we've reached the end of chapter 28 and the end of the book. If you've ever wondered why you're alive, why you exist, then you're human. God put this sense of eternity in our hearts and that always leads us to wonder about our place in creation. The good news is that the Bible, in fact Jesus himself, gives us that answer. And our mission as believers is very clear. So as we'll see, what remains for us is to decide if we really are followers of Christ or just admirers of Christ. Are we obedient servants to the God that saved us or just sympathetic rebels with no hope of eternal life? We'll face those questions and more as we listen to today's message from Pastor Pierre.
1: Follow along with me Matthew 28 verses 16 through 20, the Great Commission. The eleven disciples proceeded to Galilee, to the mountain which Jesus had designated. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some were doubtful. And Jesus came up and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age." Why do we exist? Well, the answer is in the Great Commission. His last words here to the disciples, according to Matthew's gospel. And therefore, according to the risen Lord, we exist, church, to glorify God by producing disciples of Christ. That is the call to salvation, verses 16 through 19. Now, let's get situated contextually here. The three other gospels describe what took place between Matthew's epilogue and the previous scene. After appearing to Mary Magdalene and the other women, for example, the Lord interacted with two disciples on the road to Emmaus, that's in Luke. He revealed himself to the eleven and the associates, first without Thomas, that's in Luke and John, and then with the doubting follower, according to John. Then John chronicles Jesus' encounter with the disciples while they fished, and that's the scene that Christ restores Peter to ministry, John 21. Now, Matthew inaugurates the Great Commission seen here by pointing out that even after irrefutable proof, some people still doubted. Even after at least the eleven saw Jesus a couple of times after the resurrection, some in that group had doubts. Now, if that's the case, then we can understand why some Christians today even resist The idea that followers of Christ are under marching orders to perpetuate the process of disciple-making. But obedience to God doesn't happen accidentally. We know that. It's not natural for our flesh to obey God. Our flesh naturally wants to do the opposite of what God instructs us to do. So we understand why we still have doubts. Add to that the pressure from our culture who says today that evangelism is a, a no-no. You can do it within the four walls of your church, but not outside in the public square. Well, Christ gave us a commission, and we must honor that commission no matter what the laws say. Now, I understand also that some Christians who want to bypass their responsibility to personally embrace the Great Commission may argue that God has gifted some people for that, and therefore they say that there is an alleged gift of evangelism. The problem with that, church, is that nowhere does the Bible say that there is such a thing. According to Paul, God gave some as evangelists to equip the body of Christ for so winning. That's in Ephesians 4, verse 11. But the evangelist is not to be the professional soul winner. That's not God's intent that only that one person be the soul winner of the church or the special unit of the church who takes upon himself world evangelization while everybody else enjoys potluck. Furthermore, Paul's instruction to Timothy to do the work of an evangelist in 2 Timothy 4 verse 5 suggests that God has not gifted every church with an evangelist on staff. Therefore, the pastor-teacher, the same designation for elders, must pick up the load, not as the elite group of soul winners in the church, but by equipping the congregation to do the work, equipping the congregation to evangelize. You understand that? My job is not to be the sole, soul winner of this church. That doesn't square with Scripture. The idea is that my job and the job of the elders is to equip the saints for the work of winning souls. So you don't have the gift of evangelism, church, because no one does. No one has the gift of evangelism just like no one has the gift of prayer or the gift of reading the Bible or the gift of attending church. We conclude then that everyone who claims affiliation with Jesus must do what he came here to do, namely to seek and save that which is lost, Luke 19, verse 10. So if you claim to follow Jesus Christ, if you say, he is my Lord and Savior, he is my example in life, I want to be like Jesus Christ, then obviously it follows that you will have a desire in your heart to seek and save that which is lost because that's what Jesus came here to do. Look at verse 19. Highlight that word, therefore, and draw an arrow to the verse above, indicating that there is a strong connection between those two sentences. And what we learn here is that Jesus bases his command here on the authority that he has been given. He says, all authority has been given to me. Therefore, because I have all of the authority, I'm going to give you a command. And the disciples knew that what followed was a command because Jesus spoke the main verb of this passage in the imperative mood. The imperative mood is the mood of command. It's an order. The Great Commission, therefore, is not the awesome suggestion. So what Jesus is saying here, this is not optional. This is what you must do. So the first sentence can also be translated as follows. Therefore, having gone, make disciples of all nations. So Jesus Christ commands his church, go into the world, not wait for sinners to come. You go into the world and make disciples of every nation. Now, obviously, they knew what Jesus was talking about. There was no question in their minds that they were to go and make disciples of every nation rather than to build big buildings and wait for them to come because they had been sent on a mission prior to this. You remember back in Matthew 10, verse 5, that Jesus sent them and he instructed them to go to the lost sheep of Israel only. It was a very specific mission. In that case, Jesus said to them, you go to the Jews first because the gospel is to go to them first. Go to the lost sheep of Israel. But we know what happened. They rejected the message on a national scale and therefore failed to be a light to the nations. Now, because the nation failed to recognize their own Messiah, Christians now picked up the baton without replacing Israel as recipients of the covenant promises. I need to make that disclaimer. We do not believe in replacement theology. God still has a plan for Israel. He's going to fulfill that plan. We read about it in the book of Revelation when we studied that book. And, And you can read Romans 9, 10, and 11 to clarify that later. But this means that God has always provided a way for every people group to be saved. Not the Jews only, but every people group. How do we know that? Because the word nations here that Christ instructed the disciples to go to, is translated from the Greek ethne, which means ethnicities. So what Jesus is saying to the disciples is, you go to every people group. That means you need to translate the message into their language. You need to go to every people group and every nation, every ethnicity, and give them this message. Then Jesus clarifies the first step in disciple making. Again, rather than waiting for sinners to come, the disciples were to go and tell. Go and tell, just like the women in the resurrection scene in chapter 28, verse 6. You remember the angel told them that. So now that you saw the empty tomb, you go and tell the other disciples. So Jesus is repeating and elaborating on that commission, giving them more details so that they know exactly what the function of the church should be. If you are a believer in Christ, you have no primary goal other than to honor God by making disciples. Now, you, you don't have to take on the full responsibility of going to all the nations. That's impossible. But collectively, as a, a body of Christ, we must do everything we can to go to the peoples of the world so that they can hear the gospel. Now, I'm going to continue to preach that message because I am under marching orders, and so are you. We must go to people, whether they are across the auditorium or whether they're across the street or across the ocean. Or on the other end of our internet connection. And we tell them the good news. That Jesus died for their sins and rose from the dead. Just as he said. Remember that from the last chapter. Just as he said he rose from the dead. In other words, we produce disciples of Christ. By issuing the call of salvation. Now here's something that we learned from our study of the gospel of Matthew. When we studied the kingdom parables. Most people who hear the gospel will say no. But we need to continue to preach the message. I can think of no more worthy cause, no more important job, and no more fulfilling mission than the privilege of being a herald of salvation, telling people that they don't have to die and go to hell, that they can die and go to heaven because Christ died for their sins. Life has no purpose apart from glorifying God in this way. Now, notice that disciple-making doesn't stop with calling people to salvation. There's more to it. When a sinner comes to Christ, he or she is born again. And there's a purpose in that illustration that the Bible uses here of a newborn. What do we do with newborn people, church? What what do we do with babies? We take them home. We nourish them. We teach them how to live. And we take care of them. Now, when I first met my daughter 18 years ago almost now, I didn't tell her, listen, welcome to the world Here are your diapers, your bottles are over there, good luck in life, see you when you're 18. No, and neither did you. You prepared your children for life. You walked with them, which is the exact point that the Bible wants to to make here when we're told that when somebody comes to Christ, he or she is a newborn, which leads us to the next point of our message here as to why we're on this earth. We exist to glorify God by producing disciples of Christ and also by preparing disciples of Christ. And that's the call to submission. Verse 19... Now, according to Jesus' instructions here, the first thing a person must do when he or she becomes saved is to be baptized. That's the first act of obedience that a believer must do. And there's a real simple reason for that, church. That person needs to provide an outward representation to the community of something that took place inwardly. Why? Because we can't see salvation that happens in the spiritual realm. So a visual representation of that is when a person is baptized. It's a visual imagery of an invisible reality. Of course, we'll see the fruit of that salvation eventually, but the point is because we can't see when a person is baptized, that person is not only identifying with Christ and submitting to His command, but saying, listen, I am a born-again person. This is what happened to me. I died and was buried, and I'm going to raise from the dead, and that's a visual representation of that. And there's another reason. Rather than merely admiring the teacher, a disciple identifies publicly with the leader. There's a difference between being a disciple of Christ and someone who sympathizes with Christ. Now, water baptism provides, therefore, the first opportunity for a new believer to demonstrate that submission, which is one of the reasons that the burial of Christ must be included in every gospel proclamation. Remember, Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 3-4, through 4, That the gospel is the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. Those are the three elements of the gospel that we must make sure we include in the gospel presentation that Jesus died for our sins, he was buried, and then he rose again. And one of the reasons why we must mention the burial of Christ is because when we're being baptized by immersion, we are representing that burial, that identification, I too am being buried with Christ. In fact, that's what Paul says in Romans 6, verse 4, that we have been buried with him. And by the way, the disciples knew exactly how to perform baptisms. They knew exactly what they were supposed to do because that word baptizo means to dip. So there is no other way to perform baptism biblically other than fully immersing the new believer. Now, over the years, people have asked me about the significance of baptism Now, there's nothing magical in the waters, and the act itself has no saving power. I hope you understand that. No one makes it to heaven because they were baptized. If baptism was a requirement for someone to get into heaven, he would not have told the thief on the cross, you will be with me today in paradise. Instead, he would have instructed the disciples, wait a minute, guys, get him off the cross here, baptize him, otherwise he can't be with me in paradise. We are saved by grace through faith. Baptism is not required for salvation, but it's not optional for the believer. If you are a believer in Christ, listen carefully, if you are a believer in Christ, you must be baptized because that's a first step of obedience here. And when we do this, the disciple maker honors the disciple making process while the disciple makes his identification with Christ public. The son of God died for him or her The Father accepted that sacrifice, and we saw that when we studied the scene of the crucifixion. And the Father then sends the Holy Spirit to indwell the new believer. What does that mean, church? It means that salvation is a Trinitarian enterprise. And that is why we say, I baptize you in the name of the Father, the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Because the triune God is involved in our salvation. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit indwell the believer. We know that from the Scripture. Obviously, Jesus' body is in heaven, but He lives within the believer. And we have the Holy Spirit that the Bible says it's a seal of the promise. It's a down payment of our promise that one day we will be glorified and our sin nature will be no more. Our disobedience will be no more. I'm so glad that I will not have to struggle with my flesh anymore. Now, the process of sanctification starts at salvation. God has justified you which means that he declared you righteous in his sight not because of anything you have done but because of everything that his son Jesus has done so you were justified you were sanctified meaning set apart for God by God and now you are being sanctified, which is a progressive process. It, we learn from Philippians 1 verse 6 that God began a good work in you, and he will perfect it until the day of Christ. So you will still struggle with sin. You and I will still struggle with sin until we get to glory. But we start noticing progress as soon as we decide to obey God. And there, it's, a, it's an upward call that is not a, a straight line. We wish it were, but it's not. We stumble and fall all the way to heaven. But God began a good work in us, and the sanctification process then is honored when we respond to the Holy Spirit and we respond to God in obedience. And, and furthermore, being baptized is such a joy. I still remember the day I was 15 years old. None of my family were believers at the time. I don't think my father was even in the congregation or my mom. I, 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 can't, I don't recall, but I wanted to declare my identification with Christ publicly in uh, my submission to His authority publicly. On that day, I affirm to the world, I belong to Christ. He is my Lord and my Savior. I am a born-again follower of Christ. I'm a disciple of Christ. I want to follow Him for the rest of my life. And it's such a joy to be obedient to God in that sense. So we exist to glorify God by honoring that process. We produce disciples of Christ. We prepare disciples of Christ. But we also exist to glorify God by promoting disciples of Christ. And that's the call to selflessness, the call to selflessness, because by nature, we are selfish-ish. And remember, back in Matthew 18, we concluded that God promotes down, not up. God promotes people by giving us the opportunity to be the lowest of the low servants, because the lowest servant is the greatest in the kingdom, according to God's perspective. I know our flesh cries out in rebellion against this system, because we want to be on top. We want to be. The hot shots of the kingdom. But God says, if you want to be the greatest in my sight, you be the lowest. You serve everybody else. You be a selfless, sacrificial servant. No disciple making can happen without the understanding of this concept. We need to understand that. And when we hear messages out there from televangelists saying that you are the greatest thing since sliced bread and God exists to glorify you, we need to turn off the TV and say, this is garbage. And we, we can't follow that. We need to go by what Scripture says. And, and that's one of the reasons we spend time in the Word every day. Every Sunday here in the main auditorium and, in, and with your growth groups, growth groups, we want to encourage people to be in fellowship constantly for mutual accountability, mutual encouragement. But notice that the kind of teaching that Jesus talks about here is not limited to a transfer of information from head to head. That's not what He's talking about here. He's not saying, well... Transfer information from one person to the next. Obviously, that's part of teaching. But what he's referring to here is a heart to heart type of teaching. The type of teaching that is relational. And that is why we need to be a part of a local church. Because I'm not here giving you a lecture. I'm here shepherding you. We have a relationship. And that's what we're supposed to be doing in the body of Christ. It's a heart to heart teaching because Jesus says, Teach them, the new disciples, to observe all that I have commanded you. Notice this. He doesn't say, teach them everything that I commanded you. Teach them to observe or to obey everything that I have commanded you. How do we do that in the body of Christ? There's no other way than by modeling obedience to one another. Teaching the concepts, of course, doctrine and all of that, it has to come from our heads and then to our hearts and translate into action. And thankfully, Jesus clarified for us the focus of His commandments. Remember in Matthew 22, verses 37 through 39, he said, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and foremost commandment. And the second is this, You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Church, again, loving God above everything else and loving our neighbor as ourself does not come naturally. It requires a selflessness that only the power of the Holy Spirit can give us. Because how do I love myself? Think about this for a moment. I love myself. How do I demonstrate that love? I take care of myself. I speak well of myself. I speak kindly. I want other people to have a positive impression of myself. When the Bible says, love your neighbor as yourself, he's he's saying, you do that to your neighbor. You speak kindly of your neighbor. You take care of his needs or her needs. And you desire his or her growth. And you 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 never offend unnecessarily someone. You treat them with the utmost kindness. Why? Because you love God. It requires divine enablement. But thankfully, church, again, the Holy Spirit indwells the believer. And that is a distinct feature of our age. Since the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit lives in us. And therefore, equips us for sacrificial compliance to what he wants us to do. Equips us to observe all that Christ has commended us. And by the way, not only do we have the Holy Spirit living in us, you have at least one spiritual gift. At least one that will equip you to serve God and to serve others. And it's our job here to do this with one another. To help one another discover your spiritual gift and go from there. Now, look at the last sentence, and consider this. In case you're thinking, but pastor, Jesus gave him the commission for those guys, or perhaps those 500 people that Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 15. Not me. I am off the hook. Well, let me prove to you that that is not the right way to look at this. Okay? Consider this. If Jesus meant for the commission to be only for those people in that hill in Galilee, they would have been the only beneficiaries of the promise. That Jesus says, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. But none of these guys lived to the end of the age. Therefore, that promise is still valid today for you and for me. Obviously, then, we understand that this is for us as well. We are responsible to respond to the Great Commission. And the promise that Christ makes is, I will be with you even to the end of the age. Now, we haven't reached the end of the age yet, so therefore, that promise is obviously for us. And the promise is for us because the commission is also for us. Now, think about this. If the second generations of of disciples, the disciples that these guys made, thought that, oh, this was only for them, not for us, Christianity would not have survived the first century. So, obviously, the way that God wants to grow his church, or Christ is building his church, is through that process of disciple-making. And every believer is commanded to be involved in that process in one way or another. You are commanded to be involved in that process. Not just the evangelists of the church, not only the pastors. Otherwise, this will be a very short-lived experience. And he assures us that he won't be watching from a distance. Jesus does. And he's not there in heaven hoping that we will get disciple-making right. No, shortly after this scene, Jesus ascended to heaven where he has been ever since, but spiritually he lives in you. If you are a born-again follower of Christ, he lives in the believer. We are in Christ, and Christ is in us. We enjoy, therefore, eternal and unbreakable union with him. Our union with Christ is indestructible. Once it has been established, which means you can never lose your salvation. Paul explains, I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. Galatians 2 verse 20. In Colossians 1 verses 26 to 27 he said, the mystery among the Gentiles which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. So you have Christ in you. Christ lives in you and that's why you have the hope that one day you will be in glory with him. John confirms this when he writes in 1 John 4 verse 13. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us his Holy Spirit. So we abide in Christ. Christ abides in us. We are united as it were, by our spiritual hip with Christ, never to be separated from him, and therefore we have the confidence to do what he commands us to do, secure that he is with us even to the end of the age. You see how close he is, church? Where we go, he goes. He is in the field, through us, through our lips, through our hands and feet, drawing sinners to himself, using imperfect but redeemed people like you and me. So my fellow believer, based on what we just learned, the primary reason you are on this earth, I I never want you to forget this, the primary reason you are on this earth is to glorify God by producing, preparing, and promoting disciples of Christ. God could have taken you to heaven immediately after you got saved. He wants you in heaven. But the reason why He's keeping you here is because He wants you to follow that command. You glorify God by producing preparing and promoting disciples of Christ. So let's have our potlucks. Let's have our picnics to encourage one another and to enjoy each other's company. But church, let's get out there and make disciples of Christ in obedience to the Great Commission.
0: If you have questions or comments, we'd love to hear from you. Our email address is radio at gbcsalem.org or you can visit our website truthwithgrace.org for more information about our church and this media ministry. Plus, we're always looking for people just like you to help us spread the gospel around the world. This broadcast has provided you at no cost to the generosity of financial and prayer supporters of Truth With Grace. Please feel free to share it, but please don't charge money for it or edit it in any way without the written consent of Grace Baptist Church. Until next time... This is Truth With Grace.